I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 as we are now once again continuing with our study, the book of Ephesians. Uh, And this is a pivotal point in the book. Uh, Most scholars agree, and in fact anyone just reading it would understand that there's a major shift that happens between the first three chapters and the last uh, three chapters. And you've got this uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 that is the, uh, the tie. Uh, from chapter 1 to 3, the doctrine, the things that we believe, what Jesus has done to make us as a church, to make us one. Through chapter 4, therefore, now here's the application. This is what that means for us in our everyday, how we treat one another, how we treat even uh, husbands and wives and, and fathers to children uh, and to uh, bosses to employees. And, and it has all these applications that you f- see in the last half of the book but it all is hinged upon what we've learned so far and what Jesus has done for us as a church. And so um, this is, for us, pivotal and I think uh, totally appropriate to have communion on the passage and themes of chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Uh, what it means to be uh, a part of a church, to be united together in Christ. And the communion is very much exemplifying what we have in Jesus Christ that makes us commune together as a body in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so what we're going to talk about in theory, we're going to act out a little bit uh, in the latter part of our time together. Uh, I'm going to ask that we stand together as we read this. And um, I'd, I'd like for us to see a little bit of the flow between 3 and 4. Uh, remembering they didn't have chapters when they wrote this initially. They didn't have verses. And so I'm going to ask that we start reading actually verse 14 and go through chapter 4, verse 3. For this reason, I, Paul, actually I'm sorry, I'm doing verse chapter 3, verse 1, but I'm going to go verse 1 to 14. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You may be seated. Just three main uh, sentences I just want to bring to your attention uh, that I believe Paul, scriptures bring to our attention in regards to the unity of the church. Uh, first, as we read this, we, we have this conjunction of therefore. 
Uh, and he says, in light of how Christ is making us together as one. In fact, if I could even go even further into chapter uh, 1 of Ephesians, uh, in verse 7, he said, In him, referring to Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his, of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So what is God's purpose? What is the point of what he's been doing in chapter 1, 2, and 3? All that God has been doing through Jesus Christ is this. Set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. The dream of God for all time through Jesus Christ is that he would unite all people. All things in heaven and earth united in Jesus Christ. And that is the dream of God. And so the mystery, that which was not known in the Old Testament, now revealed is this concept called the church. That is to act as a colony of heaven. Establishing for just a small sphere for us, Nightdale, Raleigh, Wendell, wherever we live, this sphere of a colony of heaven that one day will culminate with Jesus reigning on earth. And so the kingdom of God looks like those people who are subject to God's reign. God's kingdom grows as his authority is understood and exhibited in the lives and hearts of people. So... That breaks down every hostility between the people groups. In Paul's day, primarily the Jew and the Gentile. In our day, any people group that seems to uh, rise up in contention to the gospel, the gospel undermines those barriers. So certainly Jews and Gentiles and any other ethnic group we want to put in. And I would also say any cultural group that also rises, and, and it could very well be the older and the younger that often sometimes divide up. And that has a lot of ramifications in a church like ours. And I pray, my, one of my, my goals and, I, and my prayer for our church is that we would be a multi-generational worship body. A multi-generational body of believers, but also not just multi-generational but multicultural. And the tendency and the things that we try to sometimes get into is that we want the different groups, but we don't want to change how we do things. And that is perhaps a failing of understanding of how we can go about this. But I want us to understand what's in Scripture here, that we are not deviating one bit from what Scripture has to say. In fact, in this, we are hoping to be what Scripture has called us to be and do. And so what does this look like as, as we consider all that we've done? First, uh, my first point I would have you understand is that to live among others knowing the value of unity in the church. That this is important for us to understand that we've got to live, that it has this, fir- this phrase, therefore walk with 
in a manner worthy. That walking is exercising, it is to actively live. And so when we talk about walking, it's the manner of how we conduct ourselves. It's the manner of how we relate to one another. And so our way of living among one another. uh, It says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So walk in a way knowing the value of who God has made us to be. And so in chapter 4, all the way through chapter 6, he's going to hit on what this characteristic looks like, knowing that we have been brought and saved by the grace of God and brought together as one. And the very first thing he brings out, the peculiarity of a group like this, is unity. The very first thing he brings up is unity. And in fact, you go on through 16 verses, chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, it is all about the theme of unity. All right? That's how important it is. And so, first I want you to understand, we got to live among others knowing the value of unity in the church. And so let me just share with you some clues in in chapter 4, verse 1, that speaks to the value of the unity of the church. First of all, he starts off by saying, I therefore, therefore walk in in a manner worthy of the calling. So based on all that Jesus has done, all that has been done with Jesus Christ bringing us together, it flows from what we believe, unity. Unity isn't just something we force upon ourselves. Unity isn't something that we just say, hey, you guys just get along. Unity is a side effect. Okay, uh, you know, there's that Rodney King moment. Why can't we all just get along? Well, part of the problem is that within the American system, there isn't the internal and eternal aspect of heart of unity. That is something unique in a church, that there is an internal work that God is doing organically. It's a side effect of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, first of all, know that therefore that unity flows from what we believe. Our doctrine matters. One of the very first aspects of of the day of growth is we talk about what we believe. One of the things that we have on our church website, this is our statement of faith. And the reason we have that is because this identifies who we are. Our unity flows from these things that we believe. They make us. We didn't just make up this statement of faith. The statement of faith we believe is making us in our life. And that's who Green Pines is, is what we believe. This is a critical component. This is what we see right here in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, based on the doctrine of faith that he's given us in chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's applications. Walk in a manner worthy. But first I would also look at what else Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner from the Lord. A prisoner for the Lord. So unity flows from our belief, but unity is worth the sacrifice and surrender of even our freedom. Paul is speaking from prison. Why is he in prison? Well, you go back to Acts and you see that he is is directly connected to his belief that Jews and Gentiles are saved by the same grace of God and become one. In fact, he was arrested under false charges that he was bringing a Gentile into the temple. That wasn't what was happening. But from reading what Paul has said in Ephesians, I don't think he fundamentally found a problem with that. He didn't do that, 
But when the, the mob was against him, and there's Roman soldiers there to kind of keep him at ease, they were letting Paul preach and teach and share his testimony, and they were good with it until he said that God had called him to the Gentiles. At that moment, the Jews rose up again, and the centurions took him away, and they went from one place of arrest to another place of rest. And so Paul, in his mind, historically looks back and says, it is directly connected to my belief that Jews and Gentiles are one in Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of who we are. Unity is worth sacrifice and surrender of our freedom. That's what Paul says. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Why does he say it like this at this point? He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. You walk worthy of how God's called us. Now, the problem is that we live in a society in church in America where we see church as something of a club that brings benefits to us. And when the church doesn't work as bringing benefits to us, then we have problems. Paul is saying this is not what the church is. It is an exhibiting as a community of people that flows from submission to one another, but sacrifice from one to another. This was founded on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Founded on cross of Jesus. And so he says just as we come into this, we're going to walk this way. And so the church is a group of people willing to sacrifice for Christ and willing to sacrifice for one another. And we cannot lose that heart of who a church is. It's fundamental. It's not as extra credit. That's a really good church. Look how they sacrifice. No, that's fundamental to who we are as a church. And so we keep on reading. A prisoner from the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's part of my purpose in Jesus Christ. Live among others, knowing the value of unity in the church. If we can scroll it up on the screen, Ripken, uh, to that next statement there. And so this is, where is this flowing from? Well, it's flowing from the doctrine. It's flowing from the prisoner, willing to give to one another, but to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Jesus has tasked us with this. The other day, I was with my dog. Um, His name's Caspian. And... uh, it just so happened I was stuck out in the shopping center with the dog. I've never been in the shopping center, target area, with the dog. It was, uh, it was just, life kind of brought us to that point. Um, it was not planned. Uh, and so here I am, and I'm thinking, well, we'll try Petco, you know. Uh, they let dogs in. And then, even then, I was still kind of antsy about it. I thought, this dog's going to jump on somebody. It's just bad things are going to happen. So I was left waiting for my daughters uh, in the store, just there at the sidewalk, trying to <clears throat> hold him down, you know. And this lady comes out and comes right up to me. She said, is your dog an Anatolian shepherd? I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the person we bought him from said it was part German shepherd, part husky, but it looks like neither one. I don't know. Maybe. Could be. Tell me about it. Maybe. And she said, oh, these are very rare. We used to have one of these. They come from, uh, from Turkey, and you just don't see them. They're very intelligent. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so I, I looked it up online. I was like, man, this looks like an Anatolian shepherd. 
And so I, I announced it, showed the girls, and we all agreed. The dog's Anatolian shepherd. Especially when we start looking up the prices. You mean we could sell this dog for $800? I was like, you know? And so <laughs> the value of the dog, right? Uh, you know, before he was just a pet, but now, wow, maybe there's some rare aspects to this dog. Maybe we'll treat him. It's, isn't it funny how when, when uh, things come to bear and, and maybe come to light, what you once thought was commonplace might not be? Well, what you have here is Paul saying, what you think is commonplace, I know you gather with people in other groups, so you've got your various affinity groups, you've got your workplace, you've got your families, I know you gather with other people, but you need to understand something, that what you have in a church is unlike any other group of people that you will be with. It is utterly unique. It is a closer bond and a more eternal bond than the biological passing of genetics. It's going to last a lot longer than your last name and the genetic tie that's in it. And what brings you together is the Holy Spirit that is working within you that, that God is calling you to a body, to a people. And so this is a matter of worshiping Jesus Christ. And so we know the value of, of unity in a church. Walk that way. We'll go to verse 2. This takes us to the next statement. Not only do we live among others knowing the value of unity in the church, we're going to live among others with values that encourage unity in the church. Uh, that encourage it. And so you see this in verse 2. What does this look like? Well, we're going to walk worthy, who God's called us to be as one, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and love. These four characteristics, attributes that helps us interact with one another. It's interesting, you see the same listing and other things like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's the aspect of humility. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. You see some of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that Paul is bringing it out right here. You see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 of how we are to treat one another with love. And love looks like humility. We see this in the fruit of the Spirit. Where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, humility. These these things are also part of, of what it means to love one another. This is part of what it means to not grieve or quench the Spirit, but allow the Spirit to produce the fruit of unity in our life. And so this is a pivotal characteristic for those who follow Jesus Christ. Humility, meekness or gentleness, depending on your your translation, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so the first thing I would bring to your attention is that unity begins in your mind. Begins with how you think about yourself and how you think about others. I have some friends of mine, even some that went, um, went to seminary with me. We were roommates together, and they, they're no longer uh, working in ministry in the church. Um, and, and he's uh, living and, and working and, and, uh, and painting, and, but yet still very much uh, attending church. But he's starting to write some articles, and I'm just seeing this, this extremely critical role and perspective on the church. And I get it. I can understand. There's certainly things to, 
to be corrective about in any church. But what got me was the pronouns that he was starting to use. That in his mind, he no longer said we, referring to the church, but they, referring to the church. And, 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 and separating himself mentally outside of the church. And when you start dividing it in your mind that it's no longer we, but they, it, it afforded him a position of criticism because he no longer was criticizing himself. And so when they get their act together, instead of we get our act together, it started right in their mind, this point of division. Uh, and then uh, starting, when you not only versus uh, separating yourself out of it, but when you start bringing up sides in your mind, us versus them, when they, the ubiquitous they, you know, uh, uh, when that becomes a part of our church thinking, the division is already in our mind. Unity, the characteristics here, begin in our mind with humility. It's the first place of division. When we can stand outside and cast stones instead of seeing it as ourselves, of which we pray for one another, loving and sacrificing and and encouraging one another. It's kind of like a, there's a little story of a Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yep, some of you old enough remember Lone Ranger and Tonto. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's his Indian buddy. And, and the story goes that they went down into a valley and they were ambushed by Indians all around them. And they were in the bottom of the valley. And so the Lone Ranger looks over to Tonto and says to him, what are we going to do? Tonto looks back to him and says, what do you mean, we, white men? You know, it's just, it starts right there in the mind when we stop seeing ourselves as we. Humility is the, is, is the idea that when there's conflicts in our life, this is what a humble mind does. When there's confrontations, we start looking first at where we need to be corrected. Instead of where they need to be corrected. That is part of what a humble mind does in the midst of conflict, in the midst of uh, divisiveness or our preferences or changes that we start asking not where they need to get right, but the first question in any conflict, no matter how apparent the other person is wrong, all right, no matter how apparent that might be, the humble person starts looking at their own self, where do I need to be Challenged, repentant, and confessing. Before we ever go and look at what someone else needs to be doing, confessing, repenting. Isn't that what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? You remember? Before you look at the speck in someone else's eye, what do you do? First consider the log that is in your own eye before you go. It's not, it's not to say that we don't ever talk to the person about the speck in their eye, but we always look first at our own heart, our own mind, and see how we are contributing to an issue. And so this is part of humility and gentleness, is to be able to, to be uh, not abrasive, not to be uh, quick-tempered. In fact, it goes on and says, with patience. Or perhaps your translation says, forbearance. It's the opposite of a short-tempered fuse. Okay, It is to say that we will endure a long time. We will give room for someone to be different in non-moral issues. 
And there are plenty of those in any group of people to give room in non-moral issues to say, you know, it's not how I do it. It's different, but it's not a sin. I'm going to make room for that. And so this is part of the forbearance, the patience, bearing with one another in love. And so if forbearance is tolerating, uh, not in the cultural understanding of tolerating, but to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to make room for that. That's, that's, I don't have to condemn them. Then love takes another step, doesn't it? To say, no, you forbearing and patient, but you bear with one another in love. And so we endure joyfully that this is part of our worship. Uh, and so, you know what? In any given group of people, there's always someone that's a little bit different. Maybe just socially, just not the same as you. I'm going to call them socially awkward, um, quirky. If you can't think of anybody in your group that's like that, yeah, that's because you're that one, all right? Uh, so this is, why does, why does God have it like that? God allows things like that to happen to teach us how to love, to teach us to, to bear one another, to say, you know what, they're different But it is my worship to work with them. It is my love to work with them. Because it's how God has worked. Think about quirky. Imagine us to God. Talking about being socially awkward to God. That's the extreme. But God is dealing with us in love. And so loving among others with values that encourage unity in the church. But then we keep on reading uh, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. We're going to live among others working to preserve unity in the church. So we're going to live among others working to preserve the unity in the church. And that's so the eager to maintain are diligent, are, uh, has the idea of uh, be quick, uh, not to be speedy in this, to, to work to bring the unity of the spirit. Uh, and so first of all, I would want you to know, Where does unity come from? By the Holy Spirit. It is why it's an internal, organic work among a people. The key is am I surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Or am I letting some other force in my life control my attitude and actions other than the Holy Spirit. So when there is a division among the church, it is a warning flag for everyone concerned. Am I letting the Holy Spirit rule my heart, my day, my dreams, my desires, my identity? Or is there another force I'm allowing to step in? Because unity is the Holy Spirit's. Notice it says, eager to maintain, not create. Not create because the Holy Spirit is the one doing it. There's a a little story of uh, a uh, a fellow that went to the doctor and just complained that he hurt absolutely everywhere. And he was coming to the doctor and said, doctor, I need some help. I'm in pain. I'm racked in pain everywhere. I was like, really? Well, you just, you know, touch, 
touch your head for me. Touch his head. Ah! Just screamed out in pain. It's like, man, touch, touch your shoulders. Same agonizing, whelp, moaning. It's your, your knees. Sure enough, it's the same to scream. And it's like, well, touch your toes. The same thing. And, and then the doctor said, you know, dummy, your finger's dislocated. It's not all these body parts. It's this one thing. It's one thing that's causing pain everywhere. And sometimes when we think about this, there is, there is a, a, a root, a root to the pain that can be found throughout a body and in yourself. And what we're identifying right here is that if your spirit is not surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and if our church is collectively, if you don't have a surrendered spirit to the Holy Spirit, then everywhere there is going to be pain. And it's not a problem just in the knee and the head and the toes. It is the Holy Spirit through which all these things flow. And so we live, among others, working to preserve the unity of the church, but understand it's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so this is something that belongs to God. In fact, we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that spiritual authorities are looking at the church to see if we can be united in Christ, all different groups. Spiritual authorities meaning perhaps angels, perhaps demons. And so us just being together and worship in Jesus' name is something that causes either applause or jeering in spiritual places. And so you just need to understand the value of what we have as a church and that one of the most important things that we can do as a church is to be united in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Not in anything else, but united in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Everything else becomes idolatry because what unites us has to be God and Christ. There is no other force greater that can do it. It is to say, uh, I've shared this illustration before, but we have this fine china. Um, I understand um, uh, someone told me the 20-year anniversary that's coming up for my wife and I is platinum. I said, fortunately, we already have plates with platinum around given to us for our wedding, so we're good. All right? Uh, But... If, if people are carrying this, this china, to say, you need to know the worth of that china. Uh, you need to carry it carefully that has a value uh, that, that, that I can't replace. Uh, and so it's to, to walk knowing the value and to handle it knowing the value. And so what we have here is that this unity in Christ, the unity of the Holy Spirit, is of great value to God. In fact, God is using it as the boasting point of glorying in eternity. So it is of extreme value to God. And so when we are here together, how we treat one another is to be saying, I'm carrying God's fine china, and I want to do it with worth, and I want to do it with value, and I do not want to be flippant with the unity of the church. And that is conveyed in the everyday aspects of how we talk to one another. It comes extremely pragmatic on any given day we can be careful with the unity of the spirit of god or we can be abusive and it's largely determined by what we say or don't say around 
God's people. And that's scary, isn't it? Because my tongue is a wild animal, according to James. And that's why being in submission to the Holy Spirit is critical for each of us. There was a a story back in the 1970s coming out of a book uh, by Rebecca Manley Pippert, uh, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she tells this story from Portland, Oregon. When she was there, she worked uh, with a campus ministry and she met a student named Bill. Bill was always disheveled in appearance. He never wore shoes. Again, 1970s. Um, Doesn't matter if it was raining, sleeting, or snowing, he was always barefoot. But Bill became a Christian. But though he became a Christian, his appearance never really changed. Near the campus was this church that was made up of mostly well-dressed, middle-class folks. One Sunday, Bill decided that he was going to worship there. He walked into the church in his typical fashion with messy hair, blue jeans, t-shirt, and of course, barefoot. When this guy comes in, people look a little uncomfortable at this guy. You know, where's he coming from? He's a homeless. What, what is he doing? Um, he wasn't really kind of used to the norms of church etiquette. The church was kind of crowded that day. And so he uh, was walking down the aisle looking for a seat and really couldn't find anywhere to sit. Uh, and so he just uh, kind of plopped right down on the carpet. Great for a Bible study in college. But, you know, kind of unusual for a setting like this. Um, well, you can imagine the tension people were feeling as they were witnessing this. Suddenly, an, an elderly man became walking down the aisle toward Bill. People started thinking, what's, what's he going to do? Is he going to scold him? Um, talk to him about what he's supposed to look like as he comes? People think, well, you know, you can't really blame this, this fella. Um, He's, he's a world away removed from this young man, the boy's world that he lives in. He just doesn't understand. The man kept walking slowly down the aisle. All eyes were on him and it got really quiet. You could just hear a pin drop. When the man reached Bill, with some difficulty he lowered himself and sat down next to Bill on the carpet. He and Bill worshipped together on the carpet that day. Not a dry eye in the church that day. This elderly man was practicing what Paul is trying to teach and what it means to walk worthy with humility, meekness, gentleness, bearing with one another, love. He was demonstrating these things. He's being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That the greatest thing that united the young man and the old man is that they were both sinners saved by the grace of God and Jesus Christ is their only hope and they have come to worship him what drives us to church on a morning there's a lot of things we could add to it and I would say that we add to it with great peril what drives us is that we are sinners saved by the grace of God and Jesus Christ is our only hope and when we have communion We're going to be passing around a plate. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup representing the blood of Jesus. And we're passing it from one person to another. And the person we're passing to doesn't really matter 
if they're older or they're younger, does it? Doesn't really matter if they're Anglo or other than that. We're not asking what their education level is of the person or the income level. We're passing a plate that represents the body and blood of Jesus. Because it doesn't really matter what division our society breaks ourselves up in. We all need the body and blood of Jesus. And we're not going to let a barrier come between me and the next person because they like a certain song or a certain instrument or they don't like it to say, I would normally pass this plate to you, but because of that. That's ridiculous, is it not? As we take the body and the blood symbolically through the communion, May we spiritually receive it and say to God, Jesus, you matter the most. Holy Spirit, I submit to you as I take this body and I take this blood. You're worth it to surrender to. Shape how I think about the person I'm passing the plate to by your body, by your blood. Would you make that your prayer, your worship, as we commune together in Jesus Christ?